Good morning. Psalm 77, verse 1 through 20. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearing. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph said, When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings light up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron, the word of the Lord. We're in a series in which we're looking at various psalms and seeing how they help us process our most challenging emotions through prayer. You see, the psalms do something very different with emotions. A traditional religious response to emotions is deny them. In other words, religion says that God loves you if you are a good, 
virtuous and righteous person. That's going to make it really difficult to be honest about our darker emotions, right? We're, going to, we're always going to say, oh, I'm not mad, I'm not depressed, I'm fine. <laughs> but a modern Western response to our emotions is we bow down to them. In other words, we look inside, we listen to our heart, and whatever our feelings are saying, we think, oh, well, that's who I am. This is my true, authentic self. So even if you're a Christian, in our culture, it's almost impossible to resist the spell of that narrative. But here's the thing. The Psalms, the Bible, does neither of those things. We don't deny our emotions. We don't bow down to our emotions. Instead, the Bible says we pray our emotions. What does that mean? Well, that's what we're exploring in this series. Now, this morning, we're talking about doubt. Doubt is something you might think, well, isn't that more of an intellectual problem? This is where the Psalms help us, because the Psalms, the Bible, never divides human beings up into, you know, separate compartments and says, now, this is an intellectual experience, and over here, this is an emotional experience. Human beings are more complex than that. You you never have an intellectual experience that isn't also an emotional experience. That means that doubt is going to be an incredibly complex human experience that is going to include your mind and your thoughts, but is also going to be deeply emotional. So, for instance, there's a whole movement in American Christianity over the past several years that's often called deconstruction or hashtag exvangelical. Many people over the last several years, have been challenging and rethinking and questioning the experiences that they had growing up in the church. And for many people, that includes questioning and rethinking many of the core aspects of the faith that they grew up with. But here's the point. When you talk to people, you realize it's not just an intellectual experience. There are all kinds of very real experiences of hurt, pain, trauma, abuse, and all of the confusion, disorientation, sadness, anger, and betrayal that go along with that. But here's the thing. It's not just people in the church. Um, Doubt in God and doubt in faith in God is a universal human experience. This psalm we just read is exhibit A. So whether you're someone who grew up in church or whether you're exploring faith or even if you're skeptical in God, this psalm is for you. Now, my goal this morning is not to solve the problem of doubt, okay? That's way too simplistic. But there are things in this psalm that can really help us, and let's see what they are as we walk through it. We're going to see three things about doubt this morning. We're going to see the experience of doubt, the nature of doubt, and lastly, the way through doubt, okay? The experience, the nature, and the way through doubt, all right? First, the experience of doubt. Now, this psalm was written by a man named Asaph. Um, Mary's dad, Pastor Mike, preached through one of his other psalms just a couple of weeks ago. Now, we don't know what he was going through, but he talks about his experience here. He talks about the day of my trouble. So, there was some experience of evil, some experience of suffering, but whatever it was, it was so bad that it was causing him to genuinely doubt everything he thought he knew about God. So look at how he expresses this. He asks, has God's steadfast love forever ceased? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Here's what's um, so stunning about these questions. These um, questions are all directed at the core 
orthodox beliefs that he would have grown up with all his life. In other words, um, in the Exodus, it's the story of how God rescued Israel out of slavery and brought them into the promised land. But um, when God brought them out, he led them to Mount Sinai. And on the mountain, God revealed himself to Moses. And in this very famous chapter, Exodus 34, God proclaims his name to Moses. He reveals who he is. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God compassionate, gracious, abounding in steadfast love. Do you see what's going on here? These are the very things Asaph is talking about. And then over and over again in the Bible, whenever the Bible wants to talk about who God is, it quotes this passage. Do you see what's happening? Asaph isn't just doubting like peripheral beliefs about God. This is the core center of biblical faith. Anyone who heard Asaph asking these questions would have probably gasped, like, <gasps> blasphemy. That's heresy. That, in other words, thousands of years ago, Asaph was deconstructing his faith. And you can see he's severely distressed over it. I mean, he's crying out, he's moaning, he can't sleep. Why? What is doubt? Doubt is when your eyes are telling you one thing, but your heart is telling you something else. So look at how Asaph describes it in this passage. He's talking to God and he says, you hold my eyelids open. So he's having an insomnia. And you've probably experienced this yourself. You know how when something really bad happens and you can't sleep, you can't stop thinking about it, stewing about it, you can't stop worrying about it. In other words, you can't stop staring at it. You're kind of obsessing over it. In other words, you, um, your eyes are telling you something that can't be denied. The problem is your heart is telling you something completely different. Do you see what's happening? Doubt is an experience of extreme disorientation. One writer I read called it spiritual dizziness. He said, you know, if you've ever been on a treadmill, you know how you can look straight ahead and you'll be okay. Or you can look down at your feet and you'll be okay. But if you look in the wrong place, if you look up, or if you look off to the side, your brain will think you're in the middle, but you'll start veering off. And if you're not careful, you can seriously injure yourself. That's what doubt is like. Now, what do we learn from this? Well, first of all, the first thing we learn is that doubt is a very natural struggle. Everybody doubts. So if you look at this psalm, it's not just skeptical people that doubt. Asaph is a very religious guy. I mean, he wrote psalms. That means he actually wrote parts of scripture. You think about, you know, the different levels of spiritual attainment that people can rise to. It doesn't get any higher than this. God used Asaph to write parts of the Bible, and yet even he is doubting. So if you're exploring faith, I want to encourage you that doubt is a very natural part of life. But if you grew up in church, I want to encourage you that if someone like Asaph can doubt, you can doubt too. Especially because in the church, a lot of times, there's all this pressure to conform, to believe, never to question authority. And yet, when you look at the Bible, that's not what you see. Not only is doubt natural, in the second place, doubt is often part of the process of growing deeper in your faith. So for instance, when you look at the Bible, there's all kinds of famous doubters in the Bible. By far the most famous is the guy, I mean, his whole name is, is defined by his doubt. Doubting Thomas. <laughs> Remember Thomas? Um, when Jesus rose from the dead, Thomas is the guy who said, 
unless I see the nail prints in his hand and put my finger in his side, I will never believe. And then Jesus shows up and said, hey, Thomas, go ahead. Look at my hands. Put your finger in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, I love the way Jesus deals with Thomas because on the one hand, yes, he's calling Thomas out of doubt and into belief. But on the other hand, he doesn't scold Thomas. He works with Thomas. He would never have shown his hands and his side to Thomas if there was something wrong with that. He doesn't scold Thomas. He actually works with him in the middle of his doubts. And here's the really amazing thing about this. When Thomas sees Jesus' hands and his side, he cries out, my Lord and my God. That is one of the most exalted and highest expressions of worship of Jesus in the whole Bible. And who did it come from? The guy who doubted. Friends, here's the point. Doubt is a natural struggle. Doubt is an experience of extreme disorientation and spiritual dizziness. It's when your eyes are telling you one thing, but your heart is telling you something else. But not only is doubting natural, it's often part of the process by which we grow deeper in our faith. So at this church, we want to be a place where you're free to ask your questions, where you're free to express your doubts. We, we want to engage that. We don't want to shut it down. We want to engage it because God engages it. The Bible engages it, and we want to engage it too. Now that leads to our next point. We've just seen the experience of doubt, but next we need to look at the nature of doubt. Asaph is tempted to doubt in God because he's got this experience where he's tempted to believe that, that something he can see, namely evil and suffering, is changing the way he believes in something he can't see, namely God. Now, in fact, I, I think that's true that evil and suffering to this day is still probably the biggest objection to faith in God, and especially the God of the Bible. Even people who are deconstructing their faith nowadays because of hypocrisy in the church, things like narcissistic leadership, abuse, misogyny, a lack of concern over racial justice, that's hypocrisy. But hypocrisy is what? It's a form of evil. Evil is one of the biggest problems for faith in God in this world. There's a tension between the evil you can see and the God you can't see. Doubt is, is the disorientation and spiritual dizziness that you feel as a result of that tension. But this is where we need to drill down a little more deeply. It, halfway through this psalm, there's a shift that occurs. So in verse 10... Asaph says, then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. So in other words, Asaph is saying that he's going to appeal to something that's going to help him work his way through doubt. And we'll talk more about what that is in our last point. But for right now, here's what we need to see. What is an appeal? If a lawyer is trying a case and she doesn't get the verdict she wants, she can appeal to a higher court to try to get a different verdict. An appeal is when you're making your case to some kind of authority, and whatever authority you appeal to, you're asking that authority to validate your narrative of reality. When Asaph says, then I said, I will appeal to this, the clear implication here is that up until this point, he's been appealing to some other narrative. 
Now, in Asaph's case, the narrative of evil is directly challenging his narrative of a loving God. But here's the point. Asaph's doubt is not the absence of belief. It's the presence of an alternate belief, an alternate narrative, an alternate appeal that is challenging his belief, his narrative about God. Or we could say it like this. You can never doubt one thing without simultaneously believing something else. Right? You can never doubt one thing without simultaneously believing something else. It's the presence of that alternate belief that's actually causing the doubt in the first place. Now, here's why this is so important for us. This means that we need to be ruthlessly honest with ourselves about all the alternate beliefs and faith assumptions and stories and narratives in our own lives because unless we do that, we will never really understand our doubt and never really deal with our doubt. And this is especially important if you're someone who's maybe exploring faith or skeptical about God. Because there's a narrative in our culture that goes something like this. Many people would say, look, I'm a scientific pers person. That means that I don't have beliefs, I have facts. So for instance, um, Stephen Colbert interviewed Ricky Gervais a few years ago on his show. And uh, Ricky Gervais is a British TV actor and comedian. He's also a very outspoken atheist. And during the interview, uh, Ricky Gervais explained his atheism to Stephen Colbert like this. He said, atheism isn't a belief system. Here's atheism in a nutshell. You say there's a God. I say, can you prove that? You say no. I say, I don't believe you then. The idea here is that Unless you can prove something scientifically, the only way you can know something is if you can prove it by scientific fact. So for many people in this world, evil is like one of those brute facts that, that nobody can deny. Now listen, is it a problem that the Bible speaks about a loving God and yet we live in a world of evil? Absolutely. But if there is no God, if this world is all there is, then we've got an even bigger problem. What is that? Let me explain it like this. Um, Andrea Palpent-Dilly is a, a woman. She grew up as a child in Kenya with parents who were mis uh, medical missionaries. By the time um, she was a teenager, as a young girl, she had grown up seeing so much death and suffering that by the time she was a teenager, she was seriously doubting in the goodness of God. And by the time she was in her early 20s, she had totally rejected Christianity. Until one night, she met a young man who began telling her that all morality is relative, that there's no such thing as objective, right, and wrong. And before she even realized what she was doing, she just started responding to him and saying, look, if all morality is subjective, then you can't say Hitler was wrong. You can't say starving babies is wrong. You can't condemn evil. There has to be some objective moral standard up here. And when she said up here, she waved her arm in the air, drawing a horizontal line. And that, she said, was the beginning of her journey back into faith. She said this later in an interview. She said, when people ask me what drove me out of the church, and what brought me back, my answer is the same. I left the church because I was mad at God about suffering and injustice. I came back to church because of the same struggle. I realized that I couldn't even talk about justice without standing inside of a theistic framework. 
in a naturalistic worldview or an atheistic worldview, an orphan in the slums of Nairobi can only be explained in terms of survival of the fittest. To talk about justice, you have to talk about objective morality. And to talk about objective morality, you have to talk about God. Now listen, I know that's a long quote, but do you hear what she's saying? Is, is evil a problem in this world? Is the presence of evil and suffering in this world a problem? You bet it is. And it's right, it's good, it's necessary for us to complain about that. But here's the thing. If there is no God and this world is all there is, then not only is there nothing to complain about, there's no one to complain to. Friends, here's the point. Doubt is a natural struggle, but doubt is not the absence of belief. Doubt is the presence of conflicting beliefs. You can never doubt one thing without simultaneously believing in something else. Like, for instance, the reality of evil and the reality that evil needs to be put right. That is not a fact that you prove scientifically. That is a belief that you trust by faith. And that includes Ricky Gervais. And that leads to our last point. We've seen the experience of doubt. We've just seen the nature of doubt. But lastly, we need to look at the way through doubt. The way through doubt. Because here's the thing. Remember we just said a little bit ago that there's a shift that happens halfway through this psalm. In verse 10, Asaph says, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. So he's saying, look, the narrative I have, the, the, the thing that I've been appealing to, it's not giving me a satisfactory verdict. So I'm going to appeal to a higher court. Now here's what this means. Um, one of the really fascinating things this week as I was studying this psalm, I found out that it's almost unanimous. Almost every single theologian, scholar, and commentator on this psalm pointed out the same thing. And once you see it, it's going to be really obvious to you too. They all pointed out that the first half of this psalm is dominated by the language of I, me, and myself. So for instance, in verse 6, he says, I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. I, 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 the whole first half of the psalm. But then the second half of the psalm is, is dominated by you, you, you language. So he goes on to say, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, have redeemed your people. Instead of I, 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 it's all you, 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 God. Asaph is turning from self to God. Now listen, it is so important for us not to let go of, but, but to name and, and to remember all of the pain, hurt, trauma, abuse, evil, suffering, and hardship that led Asaph to doubt and that has perhaps led many of you to your own experiences of doubt. We've had whole sermons in this series uh, about grief and anger in the Psalms that show how incredibly important your grief and your anger is to God. We can't minimize that. And yet, what's the problem when our whole frame of reference is ourselves? The problem is it's way too limited. It's way too narrow. It means you're trapped inside your own experience. It's like, um, it's like when the pain and the evil and the suffering, if that's the thing that's front and center in front of your face, that means it's going to change and affect the way you see 
everything in the world, especially God. It's like looking at the world through a, a pair of sunglasses that color everything you see. Every, everything you see, you're looking at it through that lens. That, that's a problem. And yet here in this psalm, we see something else happening. Because Asaph, throughout the whole first half of this psalm, that's the way he's looking at the world. He, it, Asaph is looking at God through the evil. It's like a pair of sunglasses. It colors everything he sees. And he's miserable. But then he says, okay, I'm going to put on a different pair of glasses. So now in the second half of the psalm, instead of looking at God through the evil, now he's looking at the evil through God. And that changes everything. Because what he does is he begins to start going through the whole story of the Bible. He begins to pray and to meditate. That word comes up over and over. He's meditating on all of the mighty works of God. And especially, he's meditating on the ways that God has rescued his people from evil. And especially, he's meditating on the Exodus. Which is the story of how God rescued his people from evil. And delivered them by making a way through the water, through the sea for them. So that they could walk to safety on dry ground. He points to it in this psalm. He says, when the waters saw you, O God. When the waters saw you, they were afraid. It's almost a comical image, like the waters saw God and they like, were so afraid that they hightailed it and ran away. God, this is saying that God made a way for the Israelites through the water. But here's the amazing thing. You know, when we see evil and injustice in this world, we want to know, God, what are you doing about this, right? And if God is not working the way that we think he should be working, we doubt. But the amazing thing about this psalm is that it shows us a God who never does things the way we expect him to do them. So verse 19 says, Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. In other words, this is saying that the way God rescues us from evil is by going right into it himself. That God goes into the waters. He goes into the danger, the evil, the hardship, the trouble, the suffering, and the pain. God dives headlong into it and makes a way through for us. He's, he's always doing things the way we would never expect it. That, that God dives headlong into the waters for us in, aver, in order to make a way through the water for us. And yet, it says, your footprints were unseen. In other words... Because this God acts so unexpectedly, there's always room for doubt. So for instance, you can maybe imagine some scientifically mo modern-minded Israelite who would have been walking through the sea and the waters parted on either side of him and he could have said, well, now there must be some natural explanation for this. There's always room for doubt with this God. He never does things the way we expect him to do. Why? It's because he wants a relationship with you that's based on trust. And the only way that trust can grow is if there's also room for doubt. Otherwise, there wouldn't be any trust, right? Friends, the main call to action in this psalm is remember. Over and over and over again. Remember. What is remembering? Remembering is a, it's a form of vision, Remembering is a way of looking at things. You're taking images from the past. 
You're assembling them into a narrative and then you're assigning meaning to them. Remembering is a whole new way of looking at things. So in this psalm, what he's doing is he's remembering, he's praying, he's meditating on the mighty works of God, on the exodus of God. He's no longer looking at God through the evil. He's looking at the evil through God. And in the ultimate exodus, the ultimate place where we see God diving headlong into evil in order to rescue us from evil is on the cross of Jesus Christ. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ experienced the ultimate disorientation, ultimate spiritual dizziness. In this psalm, Asaph is crying out in his day of trouble, but on the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was experiencing the ultimate forsakenness, the ultimate disorientation and dizziness of alienation and separation from God. And even more than that, can you imagine what it would have been like if you had been standing at the foot of the cross, looking up at Jesus hanging there on the cross? And what would you have said? Ladies and gentlemen, God has left the building. His footprints are unseen here. God has abandoned Jesus. He's abandoned us. God couldn't possibly be at work here. We'd be looking at God through the evil. And yet, on this side of the resurrection, we know that far from, from not being at work, God was most powerfully at work. That in the place on the cross where it looked like God was, had most abandoned Jesus and where he was least at work, that on the cross, Jesus was single-handedly destroying all evil, all suffering, all death, all sin for all time. His way was through the waters, yet his footprints were unseen. Friends, remember the cross. Remember the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Prayer and meditation on this storyline is a way of looking at things in a new way. We're no longer looking at God through the evil. We're looking at the evil through God. I want to tell you a story about one of my favorite preachers who was very well known for his three-point sermons and for quoting German philosophers. Um, of course, I'm talking about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Martin Luther King Jr., um, in 1963, he was sitting in a jail cell in Birmingham because he had been protesting unjust segregation laws in Alabama. And while he was there, eight white clergymen wrote an open letter um, criticizing Dr. King um, because they uh, were accusing him of being an, an outside agitator. And so as a response, Dr. King wrote... Uh, the very famous letter from a Birmingham jail. And in that letter, Dr. King begins by, um, by just calling out the call to justice, the urgent call to justice in this world. But then he goes on to talk about how deeply disappointed he was in the white church for not only failing to support the civil rights movement, but in many cases, outright opposing it. Now think about this. If anyone in the world would have had good reason... <laughs> To, to uh, reject Christianity, reject the church, to reject faith in God because of the church's failures to uphold the cause of justice, it would have been Martin Luther King. But what did he say? Did he say to these white Christian leaders, look, the problem with racism and injustice in this world is that you're being too Christian. We, the only way we can really address race and injustice in this is society is to get rid of faith. Did he say that? No. In fact... He said the opposite. 
He said the only way we can really address uh, race and justice in this world is by getting deeper into your Christian faith. It, the problem is not that you're not Christ, is that you're too Christian. The problem is you're not Christian enough. And then he starts meditating. He starts going through the story of the Bible and meditating on all the ways that God worked through the world. He says, wasn't Jesus an extremist for love? The problem is not that we're too Christian. The problem is we're not Christian enough. He says, wasn't Jesus an extremist for love? Wasn't Amos an extremist for justice? Wasn't Paul an extremist for the gospel? What's he doing? He's meditating. He's remembering on scripture. He's not looking at God through the evil. He's looking at the evil through God. Friends, remember. What is to remember? To remember is the opposite of dismember or deconstruct. It's a way of putting the story back together again. Meditate on the, on the life of Jesus. Meditate on the cross and resurrection. The more you do that, the more you put the story back together again, you'll no longer be looking at God through the evil. You'll be looking at the evil through God. Because this is a God who calls you to trust in him. And yet his footprints were unseen. He doesn't work the way we think he was going to work. And listen, I know that's scary, but at the end of the day, here's the deal. You are going to put your trust, not your certainty, your trust in something. And whatever it is, you're going to believe in it. You're going to give yourself to it. You are going to trust in something because doubt is not um, uh, the absence of belief. It's the presence of conflicting beliefs. You can never doubt one thing without simultaneously believing in something else. What are you believing in today? What are you trusting in today? Remember the cross and resurrection. Meditate on the God of the Exodus, the God who works mighty works so that you can know that when you go into the water, when you go into the storm of doubt, that you've got a God who's with you in the midst of that. You're not alone. He's going to make a way through it for you because that's exactly what he did on the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning because you are a God who dives headlong into the waters of evil and suffering and hardship and trouble and pain and even our doubt. And you make a way through us because on the cross, you made a way through for us through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, you are the, the God who acts in ways we would never expect. Your footsteps are unseen, and yet we praise you this morning, God, that you're a God who can always be trusted. Thank you for calling us into a relationship with yourself. We pray this morning that you would help us not to look at you through the evil, but to look at the evil through you. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're going to receive our offering at this time. Uh, due to hate, health and safety concerns, we don't pass an offering basket. There is an offering tray on the, in the foyer on your way out. Um, but for most of us, it's simplest and easiest simply to head to our website where you can easily give online. Um, now, if you are a regular member or attender at this church, this is an opportunity for us to participate together in the vision of our church. Our vision is to see the city made new by the gospel, spiritually, socially, and culturally. But if you're a guest or visiting this morning, we want to invite you to remain our guest and our visitor. Um, we want to welcome you. Please don't feel any obligation to uh, participate with us financially. Instead, um, we have a COVID-19 page on our website. So if you're going through some hardship right now, um, you can contact us through that web page and let us know if there's some way that we 
can help you. We have a, a, a fund that we have established for that very purpose. So please let us know if there's any way we can serve you this morning. Um, but for all of us, this is an opportunity to meditate, to remember the story of Jesus, the cross and resurrection that gives us a whole new way of looking at life and the world and God. Let me pray for us, and then I'm gonna, uh, the musicians are going to play for us. Father, we thank you for these gifts and these offerings people give so sacrificially to this church, Lord. So we thank you for that, and we pray that you would use these gifts and offerings, that you would multiply them, Abba, that many others may come to see, know, and trust this Jesus who makes a way through evil for us. For we pray it all in Jesus' name, amen.